Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Isaiah 53, 53, and we're going to talk tonight about the cross as God's suffering, Isaiah 53, all right, somebody willing to read that for us, if you're there already, all right, I got it. Go ahead, Daryl. You got it. All right. Thanks, Daryl. Um, who's this talking about? Jesus. Okay, let me ask you another question maybe you hadn't thought of. How do we know that? He, dri- he died for our transgressions, so we infer that from what we know of what Jesus did. Any other things that point out that fact? Yeah, Dean. So fulfilled prophecy, okay? Would you be surprised to know that um, Israel believes that this is talking about them, that they're the suffering servant? Did you know that? And so how do we, how do we reconcile that interpretation? I want to suggest to you something. Go ahead, Susie, you know? Yeah, and and that that may be the case here. As uh, one thing that comes up again and again is God refers to Israel as His son, okay, and then He refers to Jesus as His son. And sometimes those prophecies they they overlap. Uh, for example, uh, back in the Exodus, something really big happened, and it's already hinted at in the name. What happened in the book of Exodus? <laughs> They left. They exited when we got off the boat in um, in Greece, and we disembarked from we we on our trip to Turkey and Greece. We disembarked from the the little uh, cruise that we took between Turkey and Greece. And I looked up and I recognized the Greek letters, and the exit sign said Exodus. It's like okay, I know what that means. <laughs> um, okay, so God says in the Old Testament that out of Egypt he's going to call his son. And he did call his son, his son Israel. And then we find uh, in the New Testament that same verse applying to Jesus. Out of Egypt I will call my son when when they went to escape Herod. And so I think what has happened, there's other verses that refer to this, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He is the Israel of God. Okay, so... When you look at uh, what Jesus is, he fulfills this. And while there may be a case that could be made that Israel fulfills this as a suffering servant, I, I imagine that no nation has suffered more than Israel has suffered in terms of historical longevity of suffering. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that uh, being God's son. So uh, let's talk tonight about this. You know, uh, people people suffer. I don't have to tell you this. And we see it in the Bible, 
and we see it observable uh, in the world around us, and we know it from personal experience, what suffering is like. But in the Bible, God is shown as suffering. He suffers, and uh, he suffers with humanity. He's grieved at the wickedness of people uh, in in, uh, Genesis 6. When he looks out and it says the inclination of people's hearts were always wicked all the time. And, and God's grieved that he made mankind. He's sad about the state that people have come into. And you can imagine that that, uh, that same feeling must have been there in the fall in the garden. So he's grieved with the wickedness of people. He's grieved at the oppression of his people. Do you remember when God called Moses? He said, I've heard the groanings of my people in Egypt. And he prepared to send a deliverer to rescue them. And then uh, he's grieved at the unbelief of his people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And then we see him grieved at idolatry, which the Old Testament refers to both in symbol and expression as spiritual adultery. That you've, you've gone off with these other gods and you've treated them like you should only treat your true husband. And uh, so he's He's grieved by these things. But all of this is really finally put on display in the cross of Christ, where God suffers in Christ. Uh, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery says, other religions portray a deity that serenely transcends human suffering. In other words, that you know we're down here with all of our mess, and those gods are up there, untouched by it all, living in heavenly bliss without any real trouble. And we can see how the gospel stands in contrast to that as the mystery of the suffering God who came down in Jesus Christ and suffered on the cross. It gives us remarkable insights into his redemptive love. I want to talk, first of all, before we dive into this passage, about three kinds of suffering. Three kinds of suffering. Let's talk about the first one, uh, and we'll call it punitive suffering. What is what do you think that means, punitive suffering? Take a stab at it. Punishment for misdeeds. When you suffer because we've done wrong or maybe we were just foolish, you know, um, and didn't, you know, close the gate or whatever. I don't know what it might be, but there's there's punitive suffering. And it's sometimes called retributive or retributive suffering. Uh, it's or, or tragic suffering, the the deserved punishment for a mistake that a person's made. Let's take a moment and think about in the Bible, who do you know in the Bible that received punit- punitive suffering? They suffered out of deserving. Yeah, Josh. Okay, the Egyptians. Okay, who else? Anybody else? Huh? Jonah. Jonah went the hard way, didn't he? He didn't have to. If only his theology had caught up with him. Anybody else? Let's... Joseph? I wouldn't put him in that category. Not in that category. I don't think he suffered for something he did. Not that he deserved. Herod? Okay. Remember it says he was eaten with worms. He's lifted up in pride. Yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah? Yep. Adam and Eve? Who? I don't know if Paul, I'd put him in that category. Um, it says that there was a 
preventative measure that was put in place with the thorn in the flesh, but as far as punitive suffering, I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd put him there. There may be reasons too, but but I don't know what they are. Okay, and then a second category. So that, that's those who suffer in some deserving way. Okay, the second category is innocent suffering. Okay, uh, also uh, maybe unmerited suffering. You could call it that. And uh, the reason why I checked on Joseph is because I got Joseph in this category. That he's an innocent sufferer. Okay, he's one that uh, maybe the only fault that he had was he told his brothers and his parents his dream. Okay, and I get the sense that he was innocent in doing that. I don't think he was lifted up in pride. I think he just told them the dream, and uh, all of a sudden his world begins to unravel. And in fact, uh, he's the victim of being the father's favorite. Okay, if anybody did anything wrong, probably in that. It was Jacob for showing favoritism to him. And his brothers, of course, they were, they were guilty. And so what did they do? They, they were going to kill him. They threw him in a pit. They were going to kill him. They decided, no, Judah, who's no virtuous man, talks them out of it. He says, let's uh, get, at least get some money from him, for him. And so they sell him to some traders, and he ends up in Egypt not because of something he's done. Who else we, might we call uh, unjust in their suffering? Job? John the Baptist? Okay, good. Anybody else? Who's that? Abel. Yeah, yeah, Abel, for sure. Righteous uh, Abel's blood cries out. Jesus, Jesus, that's the obvious one. Yes, Jesus, that's a good one. Um, Paul, I think, I would put Paul in that category as well. I think an early David, you know, later in life he suffered because of his sin, but early in life he suffered because a jealous king was after him. Okay, and then, and then Christ, as was mentioned, uh, innocent suffering. And then there's a third category of suffering, which both of these can become. I want you to think about this for a moment, and that's, that would be redemptive suffering, that in some way, either a deserved suffering or an undeserved suffering can somehow be used in a redemptive way by God. Anybody think of a verse that relates to that? How suffering can be used by God? Count it all joy, okay? God works all things together for good for those who love him, called according to his purpose. Okay. Has there ever been a time when somebody has sinned and then they face consequences and then it caused them to repent? Okay, Peter. So I think in, in that area, you've got people who have suffered for something that they've done wrong and it's caused them. I would put also uh, Nebuchadnezzar in that category. Remember, he roamed about like a wild animal eating the grass of the field, and God humbled him. So he deserved that, and it led to a redemptive purpose. And what about anybody think of, let's not mention Jesus just yet, because I think, I think we will all go there in our minds, but um, how about a redemptive suffering of somebody who is innocent? Joseph. Joseph. I think Joseph. And, and how is that redemptive? Save the whole nation from starving. All these bad things happen to him, not his fault. And he ends up in Egypt, spends years in 
in jail and uh, lied about, betrayed by his family, by his employers, by people that told them they would remember him when they left prison. And none of it seemed to be good. None of it seemed to be his fault. And then in the end, he says in Genesis 50, 20, uh, everything that happened to me, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good, to save many people alive. So it was for the purpose of saving people. So I want to suggest to you that God can take both uh, suffering that is our fault, if we'll give it to him, and suffering that's not our fault, if we'll give it to him, and he can redeem it, and he can use it for good. Because all things can work together for good. And if you read through Romans 8, through the end of that, he goes on to talk about the ways in which we're more than conquerors. And you would think it would be like rolling in the, you know, the the money and that everything would just be going well. And he says, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. Conquerors, we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And he mentions a whole bunch of negative things that could happen to Christians. And he says, we're still victorious. We're not only conquerors, but we're super conquerors in all of these things. So we see the we see the biggest example of this in the innocent suffering of Christ, how it was redemptive for us. Because Jesus suffered, we benefited from it. The cross is the place where we see the suffering of God on display in its redemptive purpose. So let's take a look at a few of uh, these categories here. We'll just go in sequence. And the first one is in verses 1 through 3, and that's that Christ suffered ingloriously. He suffered ingloriously. Okay, what do we, what would we mean by ingloriously? What is what does an inglorious mean? What's that? Shamefully? Okay. It's not in a prestigious way. Jesus didn't suffer in a way that anybody would want to suffer with. The the purpose of the Roman cross was to humiliate and kill. And it served as a warning to other people, don't mess with Rome. We mean business. So they put people on display. They didn't put, cor- they didn't put crosses in corners. They put them along the sides of highways so that people would walk past and they would shake their head and say, I don't want to be that guy. Don't be guilty of that. And so, And it was done in a shameful way. We often see Jesus with the loincloth, but that's not the way the Romans did it. So on top of the fact that it's painful and you're going to die, it's also humiliating. And so that was the purpose of the cross. But, but even prior to that, we get some glimpses that this is the way God was intent on doing this. Remember, as we're reading Isaiah, it's talking about Jesus, but we're about 700 years prior to Jesus coming. So this, and the interesting thing about the prophetic way of speaking is, and and maybe this has something to do with the way that Hebrew works, but oftentimes uh, things are said of the future, but they're put in past tense. So he was, he was this, he was that, which we'll see in just a moment. Uh, So I want you to see, first of all, in verse one here with me, that the Lord's way Whatever the Lord is talking about here in in, uh, chapter 53, this is God's way of saving his people, okay? And I want you to notice with me by these first two questions that the Lord's way would be unexpected. So it's being prophesied, but he's telling them ahead of time it's going to be unexpected. 
Have you ever been told about a surprise and then ended up being surprised anyway? And that's the kind of thing that happens here because when Jesus comes, nobody's really looking for this. And even though they've been forewarned by 700 years and many of them had the uh, the religious leaders, many of them probably had the uh, book of Isaiah memorized word for word. You could start a sentence and they could finish it. Yet they still missed what Jesus was about. They were looking for a Davidic figure to come in and kick the Romans out to give to make all their dreams come true in terms of their national identity, to see God's glory come down and, and Israel be glorious again and Jerusalem be glorious again. And uh, because their eyes were set on a certain expectation, they missed the real thing. Are you with me on that? Um, why didn't the people who told the wise men where he would be born, why didn't they go worship him? You ever wonder that? Why didn't you go? They went back to their homes. Oh, yeah, they're spo- he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but we don't think it's happened yet, I guess. I don't know what, what they were thinking. But the Lord's way was unexpected. So notice these first two questions in verse 1 here. Who has believed our message? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed and to whom has it been revealed? In other words, who really is getting this? Who is getting this? Who is understanding what God is about to do? And this is surprising because of who he is. So that first question, Isaiah is saying, look, this is going to come across in a way that people are not going to believe this is God doing it. Okay, at first, hopefully, I mean, you and I know. And so once once the uh, the mystery has been revealed, it seems obvious. But prior to that, it always doesn't always seem obvious. So he's saying, who has believed our message and and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he's showing that this is a particular way God's going to save, but it's kind of, in a way, inglorious. Notice that he says, the arm of the Lord. And the arm of the Lord, if hopefully I have this here. The arm of the Lord means the might of Yahweh. Okay, so Lord here uh, is going to be uh, the word Yahweh. So it's not Adonai as we might expect to find, but it's Lord. And the arm of the Lord is a, a, a picture for us, picture. So whenever the Bible talks about the arm, it's usually talking about strength. The right hand or the right arm is the arm of strength. And here it's talking about the arm of the Lord. You can see some examples of this. Exodus 6, 6, uh, Exodus 15, verse 16. These would be good ones to look up. I'll uh, show you one of these here. Isaiah 40, 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. The arm is a symbol of power. Okay, so then uh, one of my favorite verses in Isaiah. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. He's going to roll up his sleeves and show what a great God he is. How's he going to do it, though? Uh, He does it in a surprising way because what the arm of the Lord is referring to here is Jesus. Jesus is God's arm in this. Now, don't get weird about it like we've got to somehow subdivide God into different parts. This is a metaphor that's helping us to understand God's strength and power is going to come through this suffering servant. 
Okay, that's this is why the world can't figure it out because God slipped under the radar. He did things in a way that was surprising. Okay, um, Isaiah fifty nine one. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. It's also surprising because of what he's like. I can notice some things regarding what he's like here in uh, verse 2, I think it is here. Say, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. The first he is referring to Jesus. The second him is referring to the Father. So this is Jesus growing up uh, in his human form before the Father. Okay, Like a tender shoot. Okay, And like a root out of dry ground. What kind of image does that give you? Well, if you have plants, we've been notorious at our house for not being able to keep plants alive. If you know plants that dry soil, Janie heard me say that. It's her fault, really. (laughs) Dry soil doesn't grow plants too well, right? You have to water your plants appropriately, not too much, and definitely not too little. So what is this image that's being uh, communicated here about what the suffering servant is like? Well, a little plant, a little sapling, the word that's used there is like a suckling or a sapling, uh, has grown up before him. And this is a little plant that looks hopeless because it's growing in dry soil. Okay, so how would you explain that? Like, for one thing, earlier in Isaiah, he talks about a shoot growing up out of the stump of Jesse. Okay, you ever seen, heard that picture before? That picture is that it looks like the tree is dead and cut off. Like there's nothing going to grow there. And somewhere out of the stump grows this little shoot. It looks hopeless, but it's not because a new sprout has begun to grow. And who is Jesse? Who is Jesse? David's father, and who is David in relation to Christ? Yeah, somewhere back, and he's a, he's a picture of what Christ is to be, the Davidic dynasty that God promised David. David wanted to build a temple, a building. And God said, uh, no, for whatever reason, one of the explanations is, is that he's a man of war, and he wants the person to build this to be a man of peace. But there's some other uh, things in that that suggest maybe there's other reasons, but we don't know what they are. Um, but I'm going to make a house out of you. And house is another word for dynasty or legacy. Like this is how when, when like uh, J- Joseph says, or not Joseph, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's not talking about brick and mortar. He's talking about his family. Okay, so house there means family. And David is going to be, Jesus is going to come from the house of David. So what this shows here is that this little uh, sprout grows up out of the ground, and it's surprising. And it shows us that he can't be explained in terms of his environment. Somebody said in relation to this that uh, Jesus growing up out of dry ground symbolizes for us the, the spiritual environment that Israel had at that time. Do you know? Uh, Israel was not united. When we think of like what were what's the what are the Jewish people doing during the day of Jesus? We think about Jewish backgrounds. There's not like one clear path in that because 
we have at least four sects within Judaism at that time that we know of. And then there are subsects within that. So you have like, uh, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they believe different things. You have the uh, the Zealots, who are like an extreme political arm of Judaism. And then you have a group known as the Essenes that we don't have mentioned for us in the Bible directly. They live out in the desert. They're like monks and separatists. And so you can't just say, well, this is what Judaism's like in the time of Jesus. It's not just one thing. It's many things. And part of the problem there is that they don't really have a clear vision of God. Jesus grows up out of the midst of that, and everybody tries to pull him into their group, and he defies all definitions, says, I'm not of that thing or this thing. I'm of God's thing. And he's doing something unique, uh, something that God has intended to do. Notice the next thing that's kind of surprising about him. There's no beauty or majesty, nothing desirable in his appearance. So nothing that would draw us to him naturally. Majesty here means nothing of splendor or the majesty of God. It was veiled by his ordinariness. Okay, So um, it wouldn't be that there was something about his charisma or anything like that or his physical beauty. I don't think it was as important in his day as it is in our day. But nothing like that that would draw us to him. And so if you looked at the man on the surface and didn't know what he'd said and didn't know what he'd done, you might think this guy is a pretty ordinary guy. That's what Isaiah is trying to tell us, and I think the Gospels confirm that very thing. And so we're not going to get wrapped up in, in these things. No beauty or majesty, nothing desirable about his appearance. That's found in verse 2. Notice the next thing here. Uh, that uh, these are not the things that you would expect of the servant of the Lord. You would expect him to have every natural advantage, to exude glory wherever he went, to be attractive, to explode on the scene in dramatic fashion, but he doesn't do any of that. The sapling may be uh, suggestive of that it's a slow growth. Okay, So whatever that, that figure means, it's uh, surprising that God would send the arm of the Lord to accomplish it this way. What's the outcome of all of this? I'd like you to notice what it says happens. He was despised, verse 3, and rejected by mankind. Why? Because he didn't fit their picture of what that guy should look like. And you know that some people are still rejecting Jesus on the same basis today. He doesn't look like what they want him to. And so... We don't have place for you, Jesus. So he was a man despised and rejected. The word for despised here probably doesn't have the emotional content that our word despise has. So like to almost like disdain and to hate. That's not what this word means. This word has to do more with being dismissive. That they're like, eh, so what of Jesus? That's what is saying here, that he's despised and rejected. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. This is the the source of that um, title that's sometimes given him in this chapter, the suffering servant. Okay, There's two pictures of Jesus that kind of run parallel in Scripture. And the problem is, is that... Um, a lot of times people crunch that into a flat surface, and it's not that easy. 
Okay, so when they look at it, it's almost like, well, all we see, and it's all what they saw is what they wanted to see was a reigning king, some kind of victorious superhero that was going to pop in and make their lives better. And and so they look at all the passages that talk about the glory of the Lord, and they forget these passages talking about a suffering servant. So he doesn't fit the expectation. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Even the disciples. You remember uh, Jesus is telling his disciples about how he has to go to the cross. And he asks, it was, I think, Caesarea Philippi. He asks Peter, he says, who do men say that I am? Some say that you're Christ. Some say, or some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah reincarnated. Some say some of the other prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter says, congratulations, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. And then he says, um, he starts to tell them about the cross. And immediately following that great revelation, Peter says, never, never will I allow you to go to the cross. And do you know what that reveals? That reveals that Peter doesn't have a grasp on that this is what Jesus is here to do, to die. And so he's going to stand in the way of that which I think is a source of satanic temptation for Jesus because he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's not Satan, but the spirit that he's bringing is the same spirit that tested Jesus and said, if you'll bow down to me and worship me, I'll give you all the kings of the world. You don't have to go to the cross. It was a way to shortcut the suffering and get to the glory. And he's not going to stand for it. So he rebukes Peter. I'm sure Peter was... Quite embarrassed, but you wouldn't know it. I think that stuff just rolls off him. He seems to be ready to say whatever, whenever. He's a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Then it says this about him in verse 3. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Okay, so here... Once again, that same word for despised, it doesn't necessarily have to have the emotional content, but just dismissed. And people think, uh, what does it mean to be held in low esteem? Look down on. Like, people are better than him. Do you get the irony of that? Here's the, the king of the universe, the creator of the world. And people, nobody deserves higher glory than him. And people are looking down upon him like they're better than him. That's ironic, isn't it? Have you ever felt that way? People looking down on you? Well, Jesus can identify with that. They look away. They, they turn their face away from him. They hold him in low esteem. We can see this through his life. I think Isaiah 53 talks about the cross, but I think it also includes the larger portion of his life. And it shows us that earlier on, like how he was grown, what he was like, and then I think it takes us uh, more clearly into what the cross is about. People who dismissed him, you can see this in the scriptures, the religious leaders, who the people who knew the Bible best are the ones that rejected Jesus the most. Do you find that interesting? I hope you, I hope you find that as a challenge because, man, I want to know the Word of God, but I don't want to miss the Word of God. You know what I mean? We can know the Bible and not know Jesus. That's possible. God forbid. His brothers didn't believe in him. The, the guys who lived in the same house, the Bible tells us his brothers didn't believe in him. Just Jesus had brothers. Just in case there's a little bit of a 
hangover from a certain Roman religion, you know. Jesus had brothers, and they didn't believe in him. And if you're in the James study, you found out that one of his brothers becomes saved and then writes one of our letters. In fact, two of them we know of, James and Jude. Okay. What about Nathaniel? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, he can't see the glory in where Jesus is from. And then people still don't see the glory of Jesus. They, they talk about Jesus, the great teacher, the great religious leader, but he certainly wasn't God in some people's minds. And that just shows that people can't see the glory of this. And this is God's wonderful plan is to weed out the hard-hearted and those who would dismiss him and to make way for the humble and those who are really desiring what God has for their lives. But many did follow him, and they did it not because of those things that you could observe necessarily on the outward view. Uh, They did it because of his wisdom and his way. And it suggests to me, I hadn't thought about this before, but uh, in Isaiah 53, it suggests to me that if people follow Jesus, they had to overcome a certain prejudice to follow him. Like, you must be the son of God. Remember when Jesus says that thing about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everybody's offended and leaves. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, will you leave also? And I think Peter maybe says, Lord, to whom will we go? Nobody else has the words of eternal life. And I read it like this. I'm really troubled by what you said, but I don't know what to do about it because you've got the words to eternal life, so we're just going to stick here with you even though that's a mystery to us. That's how I take that uh, saying. And so they had to overcome some kind of prejudice, and sometimes Jesus uh, said things that blew things up a little bit in order to weed out those who were, were not true followers. And here's the irony of his being rejected, is that this is God's Son coming from God's glory, an expression of God's power, the arm of the Lord, for the very people who wrote him off. That's what he was there for. That's an irony, isn't it? This is a beautiful Savior that we follow because of what he's accomplished for us. I'd like you to notice this next thing here. He suffered vicariously. That's a word we don't use every day. It means serving in a way instead of somebody else. So if we apply that to Jesus, he suffered instead of us. Okay, we could put substitutionally. That would work there, too. I think vicariously has a particular significance uh, relates to Jesus. Notice uh, what this looks like from the outside. Verses 4 through 6 here. That's what this, uh, this particular portion is about. Surely he took uh, up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace, brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Take a look at this from the outside. As you look at what Jesus is about, one of the things that you see in the Old Testament is this um, very tight uh, understanding of sin to punishment ratio like it's a one for one ratio okay so in other words if you're being if you're having a hard time in life what did you do to god that was the thinking 
You can see that in Job's friends. Like, they're sympathetic with him, but then they're like, Job, come on, you can be honest with us. We're your friends. Tell us what you did. And uh, he hadn't done anything wrong. He was innocent in his heart towards the things of God. And you can see that kind of um, thing reflected even in the disciples' attitude when they they see the blind man, and they're like, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he's, he said, neither this man nor his parents is for the glory of God. So it wasn't that they had committed some sin that caused them to be under the retributive punishment of God, though sometimes that can be the case. But it wasn't here in this case, and I don't think we can view it as so simplistic, but they did. And so from the outside, it looked like Jesus, if he was suffering like this, must be under some kind of punishment. Okay, verse 4, look at what it says there. It says, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him, we thought of him as punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted, punished, stricken, afflicted. And, and that's true, he was, but not for the reasons people thought. Remember the hang-up uh, in Judaism against accepting Jesus was that anyone who's hung on a tree is under the curse of God. Okay, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Anybody who's hung on a tree ha- is under God's curse. And so people had a problem with that, and that was an obstacle to some people coming in faith. How can you say Jesus was sinless when he was hung on a tree? And the Bible tells us if you're hung on a tree that you're under God's curse. How can that be? And I think Paul wrestled with this, and then he remembered his Isaiah 53, that he wasn't cursed for his own sin. He was cursed for our sin. It looks like Jesus is cursed, and he was, but he was receiving our curse, And so if it looks like he's under the punishment of God, he is, but not for his sins because he was suffering vicariously. So it looks like God has set his face against Christ, and he did, under the curse of sin, smote by God, holy, punishing holy for the sake of the unholy. So what he did was for us, notice these uh, statements, he took our pain. Verse 4, he took our pain. Uh, took here and bore, which is in the next uh, phrase. One thing that we've got to be careful of is not um, in these poems, these Hebrew poems, not taking these words apart and, and making them completely different because sometimes these are synonyms of one another. So when it says took and bore, it's talking about the same kind of thing here. And uh, this word means to lift and to carry. So when he took our pain, he took our pain and uh, our suffering, Uh, This is pain and suffering. That's the consequence of sin, punitive suffering. He took that innocently upon himself, and he carried it. He carried it. And we're getting into here a little bit of a uh, sacrificial symbolism where they put the hand on the head of the scapegoat, and they confessed the sins, and the scapegoat carried it away, expiated those sins by taking them away from the sinner. That's what Jesus did. He took our sins. He took our pain upon himself. He carries it away. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. Transgression has a slight nuance here, which means um, a lot of the same thing that sin means. But uh, transgression uh, means, if we want to be precise about it, to cross a line. So it's like if you step onto somebody else's property where they say no trespassing, you've transgressed. 
Okay, So it's to cross some kind of a line. Remember, we've talked about <laughs> recently when you're a kid growing up in the church, a lot of times you want to know where the line is so you can get right up next to it. Well, transgression is crossing that line. And so he, he takes our, he's pierced for our transgressions. Okay, And then he was crushed for our iniquities. Crushing uh, is referring to the crushing agony of death. It, it's something like being trampled under. Okay, and iniquity here uh, is sin and guilt together. And we might use sin uh, in a singular way. Sometimes we talk about sins and we're talking about like an itemized list of sins. And then sometimes we talk about sin, singular. And what we mean is like the sin seed that's in people. You know what I'm talking about? That he'll deal with your sin. And we're not only just talking about the acts that you've committed, but also the guilt that you carry as a result of those things. And so when we're, we're talking here about uh, the iniquity, that would be the nuance here. But um, I would be careful about making too much of a distinction. Uh, what Jesus did is he carried all of that. He was crushed for our iniquities. What he's doing in the cross is taking care of transgressions and iniquities, all of our sin, our suffering as a result of that, and he's, uh, he's dealing with it. And so I would be careful about making a distinction. I've heard teachings on this where people want to set uh, iniquity aside as a special category of sin where, uh, okay, you need to have your sin under the blood of Jesus, but then when it comes to iniquity, you kind of need to do something special to deal with that. And I want to suggest to you that that diminishes the work of Christ. Christ's work has accomplished all that. He's, he's taken care of our sin. He's, he's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. And so be careful about making too much of a distinction between those two. It's Christ conquering all of it. And he's punished for our peace. The punishment for our peace was on him. Punishment needed to happen so we could have peace. Okay, so when we come to Jesus, do you know, uh, um, we need to be forgiven and we need our conscience to be cleansed and healed. When it talks about the punishment of our peace, though, it's not talking about inner tranquility. That may be part of it, but that's really not the main point. The main point here when it talks about peace and the the, uh, Hebrew understanding of peace, shalom, is well-being. So when it talks about what he's done, he took punishment for our well-being. It's not just so that we could feel forgiven, though that is a glorious part of it, but it's more than that. It's so that we can stand in right relationship with God and be well. And we can say of our soul, all is well because of what Jesus has done. Even if life brings its worst to us, we can say in Jesus, all is well. He's glad for that. And then uh, he took wounds for our healing. Uh, Peter points out the fact that uh, this primarily is talking about spiritual healing, but Matthew, when he talks about it, is talking also about physical healing. And and I want to talk more about that in just a moment because there are times in life when we carry sickness in our body, but God will heal everyone who's saved. Do you know that your body will be whole? And he might do it in this life, and he might do it in the next life, but you will have a whole body. Amen. Well, I thought we'd be excited about that. Some aren't excited. I don't want to wait. I want it right now. Heal me now. And he can, and he might. So what was the 
cause of the suffering. It goes on to say here, the Lord laid on us the iniquity of us all, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, and him, God laying it on him is the atonement by placing our sins on Christ so that his suffering equates with our suffering, that he's taken our suffering for us. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what was the cause of suffering? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. That's the reason that we're, we need a Savior is because we've all gone astray. And then each of us has turned to our own way. Okay, so when we come to Christ, it, there has to be a recognition that we've lived life as rebels. Even if, we didn't, even if we're not nasty, surly rebels, we might be nice, uh, genial rebels who are like, ah, no, I'm just going to do it my way. We're not mean about it, but we're doing it our way. And we're not doing it God's way. And that's sin. You can do it nice or you can do it mean. It's sin. It's still rebellion. And what we have to do is come back to the path. And the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, it's uh, God wants us to turn, to turn from our sins, to turn from our wicked path and go the right way with God. And so we get back on track. So we're not going astray anymore. We're not going to the right or the left. We're walking the straight and narrow. In the New Testament, it's metanoia, it's repentance. It's changing our mind and changing our direction as a result. That's God's expectation of us. And so he sent Jesus so that we could get turned around. He took our sin and our punishment with us. The next uh, one here is he suffered innocently. I've got a cruise if we're going to get through this. Uh, These verses point to his undeserved suffering. Some people suffer punitively. That we deserve it, and then uh, some suffer innocently, and Jesus suffered innocently. Notice the surprising outcomes and the the thing that this points to. Verses seven through nine here. It says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So the first surprising thing is that when Christ suffered, he was silent. No guilty protest. Um, I think that's kind of ironic because a lot of people, uh, when they suffer even punitively like you deserve it, they complain. I remember reading about, I don't know if it was Two-Gun Kelly or whoever it was, somebody had uh, some gangster back in the 30s had shot a policeman, and then uh, he got into a high-rise building, got into a shootout with policemen up there. And when they finally caught him, he's like, why is the world persecuting me? What did I ever do to anybody? And and a lot of times we're like that. Even when we bring it on ourselves, like, God, why am I suffering? We did the stupid thing, but then we're, why, why am I suffering? Jesus, who's innocent, stood silent and took it. You know, even Pilate's trying to prod him. Don't, don't you have anything to say for yourself? And he stood silent, and he took it. Um, and he was without advocate. Notice that it says also in verse 7 here, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep before his shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, verse 8 actually, he was taken away, Yet, who of his generation protested? Jesus went to the cross, and nobody stood up for him. Where, was, where were his disciples? Somebody say it. 
hiding, scattered. Only John was kind of there, but kind of at a distance. Peter ran off. The other guys ran off. Mark ran off, and we think he might have left his clothes behind. Everybody scattered. Strike the, sh- the shepherd and the sheep scatter. Nobody protested. Who would? Who would dare to? Even the bold guys who said, like, Peter, if you go to the cross, we'll go with you. We're going to Jerusalem to die with you. And then they get there, we'll die with you. Even that same night, we will die with you, Peter. You know the rooster that's so annoying in the mornings, it's not even going to get to three. And you'll have, you'll have denied me three times. Before the, the rooster crows once, you'll have denied me three times. Notice uh, also that uh, he was buried with the wicked. This is a probably more significant um, to um, to the Jewish people than it would be to us. I suppose if you got buried in a in a cemetery with you know notorious villains, that would be a bad thing. But most of us. Um, if we're going to be buried, we're probably going to be buried in a cemetery that's going to have righteous and unrighteous people there, and it's no big deal. But you remember in uh, the Old Testament that when there was a king who was wicked, it says he was. It says this of him: he was not buried with his fathers in the royal cemetery, and that was a huge disgrace. Okay, so what this is saying is that he was buried among the wicked and the rich. That's a a thing of shame. He didn't do anything. It was wrong, and yet his grave was an infamous grave. In all this, he was innocent. He did not sin in what he said. You can read that on down here in verse uh, 9. He had done no violence. He had no deceit. There was no trickery or fraud about him. He was innocent of his own sins, but he was punished for the sins of God's people. Finally here, we made it. He suffered satisfactorily. I think we can do this in just a few minutes. Um, These verses show us, verse 10 through 12, that Christ was suffering. uh, His suffering satisfied God's purpose. Look at what it says here. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he had suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. So notice here that uh, his suffering accomplished, it satisfies God's purpose. It was a purpose for which suffering of this kind was necessary. It was the Lord's will, we read in kind of shocking clarity, to crush him. The Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Are you surprised to hear it said like that? That's bold. It was the cross was the Father's will. Okay, and the son's will. He laid down his life freely. Okay, so this was God's will. And uh, we read that in shocking clarity, I think. When we speak of God's will, we may be speaking of some different things. And I think it's good to clarify this. Let's take a moment to think about this here. Okay, God's purposes are his will. 
Um, so there's two ways that we can look at this. Uh, when we speak of His will, we might be speaking of ends or means. Okay, there's God's will that like this is His His desire for the end goal. Okay, and then there are things that we have we see God says, "I want this to happen." even though I wouldn't want it to happen in other circumstances because it will lead to the end goal. Okay, so you can think about it like here you can just imagine a cliff. Okay, there's a space between two places. And you have ends over here, and you have means to get there. So God may have a, a, a will that, and some people like to divide it this way, and this might help, his perfect will and his permissive will. Have you ever heard that? I don't know that those are the greatest terms for it, but some people like to divide it that way. And so you have things that sometimes happen that it's not God's end goal to make Christ suffer. Are you with me on that? Like, that's not his end goal. His end goal is to save souls. The means for that to happen is Christ's suffering. And so he willed that Christ suffer for the final will of him being saved. I'd like you to notice a, a verse here that kind of relates to this, First Peter 4.19. So then, those who suffer according to the will of God should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Are you telling me that sometimes God wants us to suffer as a means, not as an end? Do you understand the difference there? There's a whole theology that's out there that, said, that does away with the ends and means things, just, said, just sees this as one narrow little strip of this is what God wills. I want to suggest to you it's more complex than that, that God may will suffering in our life for a redemptive purpose, for the end to be good. Like he's perfecting our character because he's making us creatures fit for heaven. And so he'll allow things to come into our life that we might not like. For Jesus... It was to go to the cross. He doesn't perpetually want Jesus to suffer. He perpetually wants sinners to be saved. And the means was God's will in Jesus dying on the cross. And it's put so boldly and plainly for us. It was God's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. It's not the end will. It's the means will. So the father was pleased with all the son had done. Um, he will see his offspring. How has Jesus seen his offspring? Are we talking physically or spiritually here? Spiritually. He's had a lot of offspring. Okay? Uh, Abraham in the same way. Abraham, we're not all from the direct lineage of Abraham, but if you're a person of faith, you're Abraham's seed. The Bible says that and heirs according to the promise. You're Abraham's children, I should say. Okay, he will prolong his days. Jesus died at a relatively young age. How did God prolong his days? The resurrection, right? He will cause his will to prosper in his hands. So God was going to accomplish his will through Christ. He will see the light of life. He will justify many. I think those are so plain, they don't even need comment. And he will bear their iniquities, their sin, and their guilt. And he will be a great victor. He will be numbered among the great. And this is talking about his victory. Because he poured out his life, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for transgressors. He pleads for them in his life. And therefore, uh, 
he will be great. And so if we flatten the image and just look for a conqueror of a certain kind, he could have conquered politically, but then people would still die and go to hell. But what he did is he conquered spiritually, and he's given us everlasting life. And one day, that will be a visible reign in which we'll be able to look at Jesus sitting on the throne, and he will be the king of all. All this is the demonstration of his love. He's done it for us. He suffered for us. The cross was the instrument through which this happened. Sinful people were responsible. We're responsible. But this is God's will because it was for our salvation. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And his suffering means God loves us. Christ's suffering means God loves us. And that's the takeaway tonight from all of this. I hope as we approach uh, Good Friday and and, uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, that we'll be thinking about uh, the beauty of our salvation. Uh, I know we talked about suffering tonight, but there's a glory in that. This is God's way of overcoming the world. He didn't display his strong arm by smashing the enemy. He took his strong arm and he, he used it to bear sin, our sin, for our good. Amen. Let's stand together and let's thank the Lord tonight. Amen. Father, thank you so much for what you've done in the cross of Christ. And our best response to you is by giving ourselves wholly to you, um, turning our lives towards you and walking your way. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see that in our lives at times we may stand as uh, innocent sufferers. And I pray that you help us to bear up under that as those who bear the image of Christ and walk the path of Christ, to take up our cross and to follow you with joy. And we pray for your help in that because that's not natural to us. And I'm asking, Lord, that you'd help us to um, appreciate in greater depth what you've accomplished for us in the cross. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.